If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> Mark 10. Now, last Valentine's Day weekend, I taught on demons. <laughs> and in an attempt to like balance back the universe, I said this year I would teach on uh, singleness and, and that sort of thing. And something happened, this pro- actually happened yesterday, where after studying for a very long time and discussing and praying and gathering information about teaching on the topic of singleness, there's no really, really other, another way I can put it than this, that God just wouldn't let me do it. I was wrestling and, and praying, and like I really wanted to like, hey, have this to, to say about singleness, and this, and this, and this, and, and um, yeah, I think yesterday, uh, God was like, no, that's not what I want, I want to, you to do today. So I, I, I don't want you to, I know that sounds a little strange, like God wasn't in my study with his like, arms folded going, no, you, you can't do that ever. Um, but I, I really sense this, this, for the church today, what the Holy Spirit would want to say to the church is something different today. Now, I think it's an important topic, and I know that God has a lot to say about it, and, but I believe it's more of a, a topic that I should take, take more of a, a lecture, small group approach. Um, and so what I'm going to do is we're going to reserve that lecture on sex and singleness for March when we hopefully have our Center for Ministry. So you can be praying for that. We have an offering on a place, and um, we really want to get this place. <clears throat> that doesn't take, take over this. It actually just gives us uh, a space to do smaller gatherings throughout the week. So I think that's what we're going to do in March. What I do believe God wants us to talk about today is love and sacrifice. So if you have a Bible, again, Mark chapter 10, we'll start at verse 32. And I'll read and then I'll, I'll pray. <clears throat> verse 32. And they, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do something for us, whatever we ask you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, yeah, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I, will be, I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard, they, became, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to, to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever 
would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our text this morning. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, this morning we, um, we, we ask this morning, God, that you would open up our, our ears to hear from you, Lord, in our hearts. And I confess today that, um, Lord, I'm weak, and I feel a bit behind in, in this text, and I, and I pray, God, that you would show us um, your great love that you have for us, God, that you would supersede the things in my mind, that you would overcome the obstacles that people even have to believing, and God, that you would, you would penetrate our hearts and show us your word today. I pray, Jesus, that you would show us the great love with which you've loved us, how you cannot love us any more than the way that you've demonstrated your love on the cross. And I pray that, Lord, the cross of Jesus would not be this place of entry to the Christian life, but would be the, the whole of it, that we would continually go to the cross remembering what you've done and that you're not there anymore. And we just pray, Lord, that you would teach us. I submit my mind and my heart to you and ask that you would lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been in the book of Mark now for some time, and the book of Mark begins like this. And we began it uh, 13 months ago. The book of Mark starts like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hangs over the whole book of Mark like his pseudo title. It's like the title of his book. I'm writing to show you, to demonstrate, to put into story the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the whole book, Mark says. It's all about the gospel. Now, before this book was written, the life story of Jesus would spread orally. It was hard to refute the story of Jesus because there were so many eyewitnesses. So if somebody came up and said, we saw Jesus, he walked on fire, there would be people like, no, no, that did not happen. We were there. It was not fire. It was water. Like, oh, okay, water. Okay, sorry. Like, there was enough eyewitnesses around to testify of who Jesus really was. But as eyewitnesses began to die off, there were people who were trying to retell the story of Jesus, to make up a Jesus of their very own. And so Mark was the first to write a book, after him, of course, Matthew, Luke, and John, to put into writing who the real Jesus was. Not a Jesus that's reconstructed by the secular or the scholar. Not a Jesus that's reconstructed by the church or the world, but the real Jesus, what he really did and who he really was, the authentic Jesus. And what Mark meant by this is the gospel of Jesus, he's not saying this is the genre of gospel, because there is a genre of writing called the gospel, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all under the genre of gospel. Mark wasn't saying, I'm writing a, a new genre here, the gospel. That wasn't what he was saying. What Mark meant was that this was the salvation story of Jesus. What Mark was penning was the salvation story of Jesus. So the gospel of Mark is both the message that Jesus preached and what he embodied. And Jesus is at the heart of the good news both in message and in content. So in the book of Mark, the messenger is also the message. So Jesus not only embodied but also preached the gospel. So, and by the first time we get, so by the time we get to chapter 10, like we are today, we've seen Jesus, how he has embodied the message of salvation, how he's absolutely embodied it. He's preached it, 
and he's also embodied it. But for the first time, Jesus shows his followers how he will accomplish salvation. Before this time in, in Mark, what we just read, before this time, it's assumed that Jesus would overcome evil, that he would put injustice to right, he would right all the wrongs, that he would, he would come and, and abolish sin, he would do all of these things, it's assumed that he would do it, but here, finally, in Mark chapter 10, we see how he does it. We're not ever told how. If you're reading through the narrative of Mark, you're going, okay, he just forgave sin, uh, he just walked on water, uh, he just calmed the storm, he just healed a leper. How does he have, what, what, he can't just forgive and go, hey, you're forgiven. And he can't just walk on water and go, yeah, I calmed the storm, no big deal. Where, where does all of that go to? How does he, how can he do all that? And this has been a debate in the book of Mark. This is, you get to Mark, you're going, well, you can't really talk about forgiveness until you get to the cross. But Jesus here, in Mark chapter 10, gives you a glimpse of how he accomplishes salvation. And so this is how we're going to look at uh, our text today in two sections, two parts, two points. Amazing fear and redeeming love. The amazing fear that you probably picked up on and also the, um, the redeeming love of Jesus. First off, the amazing fear. Mark says that the people that were following Jesus up to Jerusalem, because you always went up to Jerusalem, the people that were following Jesus at this point in his ministry were, it says, did you read that? It, they were both amazed and those that followed were afraid. They were amazed and afraid. Uh, when we first started this church, and I was reading through Mark, knowing that we would go through the book of Mark here, I prayed that this would happen. I prayed that every time we gather, that it would be this mixture of fear and amazement. It's kind of like your first day at school, or your first date, or maybe your first baby. I remember the day that my wife and I got married, and we hired one of those videographer people, the, you know, the guys that shoot video of your wedding, and so they were videotaping, they put like a little uh, wireless mic in my pocket, so they always catch what I was saying. And so, and I, and I just kind of forgot about them because you know, you're kind of distracted by other things going on at your wedding. And so as people were arriving, and I was in the back of this garden that we got married in, and I was in the, in the back and I was watching people arrive, I had this, um, I only know this because we got the video back, um, I had this crazy look on my face, like this excitement and fear at the same time. And I was staring, and I was just like dazing out, and then I caught the camera, and I was like, okay, the camera's pointing at me. So I was like, can you hear me? And then the camera guy was like, and I'm like, I'm so afraid. And I'm so excited. And, and then I was excited, because I was excited and afraid, and it was like captured on film, just my face. I'm like, I'm going to be a husband to the woman that I've loved, a girl that I've loved ever since I was a teenager, but I'm going to be a husband. How scary is that? And I was afraid, and I was also so excited. And this is kind of how it was when they were following. This is how Mark describes following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. They're following Jesus. Jesus is leading the way. They're excited because you have to understand who they're with. They're with Jesus. But they're also afraid. This guy is capable of so much, but he's telling everybody he's going to Jerusalem to die. Now, I want to catch us up on the momentum of this moment, because I know that there have been some people that have not been around for this teaching. So to, to, um, normally when you read a book, you read the whole thing. You don't just come in in sections. So you, you might be out of context here. Why are the people following Jesus with fear and amazement? Why is it that they're following him and they're like excited and amazed, but they're also afraid? There is a bit of context that we have to pick up here. 
When Jesus came into the public arena in, in Mark, he started by preaching in a town called Capernaum on the Sabbath. He was preaching kind of like in a venue like this on Sabbath. And while he was preaching, a man stood up who, at, who was at least oppressed, if not completely possessed, by a demon, an unclean spirit. And this guy stood up and he started to shout at Jesus. And this is what he said. This is what the demon guy said. What have you to do with us? Okay, so Jesus preaching, preaching, preaching. This guy stands up and yells. What have you to do with us? Probably in a gnarly voice. I don't know. I can't do one because my throat kind of hurts this morning, but imagine it's a scary voice, okay? What have you to do with us, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? Why are you here, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And this is what this demoniac man says. And this is what Jesus replied literally, shut up, demon. So Jesus is teaching away. He wasn't like, ushers, could you escort that man out of the, the synagogue, please? He just looks right at him without batting an eye. He goes, shut up and come out of him. And everybody's like, what is he, who is he talking to? What is he, all of a sudden this man falls on the ground, flops around, the demon comes out, the man stands up, sits back down and like dusts himself off and goes, carry on. <laughs> and everyone is flipping out. This is how the people responded. Look at verse, uh, Mark 1:27, And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Not only was he talking about casting out demons, not only was he talking about the inbreaking God, he was actually bringing it. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. These people that were there in synagogue that day were astonished by Jesus' teachings, but they were amazed by his actions. Astonished means that they were literally out of their minds. Their minds were blown that Jesus actually did this by his authority, how he handled the Bible. And they were also amazed. This means that they were freaked out. They were scared. Can you imagine if that began to happen? Wouldn't you not kind of start to get a little afraid? It was amazement mixed with fright and terror. I imagine being courtside. Uh, I've never been courtside in NBA or um, on the field during the Super Bowl, but it might be something like this. Because these people around Jesus had a front row seat to what John would later explain as this. The reason the Son of God has appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. They were sitting courtside to this. They watched as Jesus crunched the, the, the demonic powers, how he subdued them, how the, the, the rustling around, the demonic voices, the spit that was coming out of his face, they got courtside, they got on the sidelines to watch all of this happen. But not only did Jesus deal with the supernatural this way, he also dealt with the ordinary this way. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus again was teaching in this town called Capernaum. And people filled this house, this room, with, as he was speaking, as he was teaching, and no one else could fit in. No one could get in. They were packed all the way to the doors and then beyond. And there's this group of friends that heard about what Jesus could actually do, his healing and his miracle powers and so they bring their paralytic friend a man who was paralyzed they pull him up on a bed a little mat they bring him over to the house and they can't get in so they go through the roof you know like you do so they're like we can't get into that the house let's go to the roof and the houses then were made of like mud thatch and and straw and all that stuff so they rip open the roof and then you know 
things are falling down on people. Jesus is preaching away, and they all look up, and there's this man just being lowered down on a bed. And this man comes all the way down and like flops on the ground, and Jesus looks at him, and it says this, that when they were lowering this paralytic down, Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw the faith of the friends. Jesus saw the faith of this paralytic being lowered down. Jesus sees it. And there's this whole subtext going on. As people were around, that Jesus sees what no one else sees. Jesus sees deep into our hearts. Jesus sees their faith. He sees what's in their hearts. He sees what's in the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes that were around him, the people that were around him. He sees what's in the hearts of the friends. He sees what's in the hearts of this paralytic being lowered down. Jesus sees what no one else sees. Then Jesus says something groundbreaking. This has never been done before. He says this, son, to the man laying on the ground, son, your sins are forgiven. You and I would go, that's kind of mean. He's paralyzed. Like, why don't you deal with that? Why wouldn't you heal? Why would you go sins? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. See, this is very, very, very groundbreaking because the power of God is now pressing its claim further than anyone expected the coming Messiah to do. The coming Messiah would bring peace. The coming Messiah would bring the kingdom of God. But the forgiveness from sins, no one saw this coming. Jesus was doing something that no one expected the Messiah to do. That's why people there thought that Jesus had committed blasphemy. Everyone started to think in their, in their minds. It says this in the text. You can't, you can't do that. That's blasphemy. Who forgives sins but God alone? But Jesus claims to have the authority and the power to forgive sins. And as the people heard this, they began to question the hearts. This man can't do this. This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus, it says, he perceives that they say this, and he says this to them. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? And we all know, well, it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, because who can, who can really know, right? If I just walk up to you like, forgiven, and you're like, I, oh, cool, thanks. How do you know? And he says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? And everybody knows it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And then he says this, because so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, Take up your mat. He looks at the, the, the man on the ground. Take up your mat and go home. This was a small town. Everybody would have known he's been paralyzed for a very long time. He gets up, dusts himself up, grabs his mat, and pieces out of the house. Just like, I'm out. Thank you so much. It's been great. Bye-bye. And he leaves. And people, listen to what they say. People were cut to the heart. People were like, Look at verse 12. It says, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this before. They were amazed. There's that same word again. They were filled with amazement. Like, what is going on here? They were amazed because not only did Jesus heal this man, but he forgave him of his sin. This is man's greatest need. It wasn't to, his greatest thing wasn't to, to, to walk, but to stand blameless before God. And Jesus heals that first. So are you starting to see here, like, what do you do with this Jesus? What category do you put him in? He breaks every paradigm, ancient and modern. 
One last example. In Mark chapter four, after Jesus delivers this amazing sermon by the Sea of, the sea of Galilee about the kingdom of God and the faith in God's word, he tells his disciples to get into a boat and let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. As they were going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there's this huge hurricane that kicked up right in the middle of the sea. When they're halfway there, this squall, this hurricane picked up. Jesus was asleep on the boat, which is kind of a miracle, but he's asleep as this hurricane crashes in on the boat. Now we have to remember, several of these people on the boat, these disciples, were professional fishermen. They knew exactly, they were pros. They've been through storms before on the Sea of Galilee, but this storm was different because they were dying. And so they woke Jesus up, It says they were literally literally perishing. They woke Jesus up and they said, do you not care that we are dying? You're sleeping. In the hour of our greatest need, you're asleep. And Jesus woke woke up and he rebuked the wind and the waves and then it was perfectly calm. So he stands up, he tells the wind and the waves to be still, and all of a sudden, not only does the storm storm stop, but the water gets perfectly still like glass. See, in in ancient culture and literature, the sea was a place of uncontrollable chaos and ultimate evil. And Jesus just told the sea and the waves to sit down and shut up. And then verse 41, and they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, who the heck, that's my paraphrase, who the heck is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, before Jesus calmed the storm, they were afraid that they were about to die. You notice that? They were like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. Jesus, wake up. But then when Jesus calmed the storm, they were terrified and more afraid of Jesus' power. They were like, we don't even know who you are anymore. Who are you, Jesus? Like, you've done, who, who like calms storms and, and casts out demons and heals paralyzed people and heals lepers and like raises little girls from the dead? Who are you? So there's this momentum and this tension building up as Jesus does all of these wonderful and awesome things. They, he keeps breaking out of their paradigms. They're like, we're following someone who has complete control of everything. And the way that Mark does this, he builds this whole story up until he gets to chapter eight in Caesarea Philippi, and then Jesus asked the most important question of all, who am I? And then they they say together, Peter speaks up, you are the Christ, you are clearly, clearly healing sin, casting out demons, calming the sea and the chaos, you're clearly the Messiah, the Christ, the deliverer, that's who you clearly are, and this is what he says, Yes, I am, and I will suffer and die. And this, this really undid them. I mean, Peter almost fought him. They, 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 they just could not get this. He told them three times. In our text this morning is the third time that Jesus told them this. With all of this power, with all of this authority, with all of this, he's gonna lay it all down, suffer, be rejected, hand hand over to the authorities, and he will be killed. So Jesus has built all this momentum, showing his power, his authority over Satan, over sickness and storms and sin. And he's going to take all that power and all that force and all that might and lay it down. 
So when it says here in our text that they were amazed and those that followed were afraid, it was that they could not fully understand what Jesus was doing. What are you doing? You have all of this power. You can literally wipe out all cancer. You can literally wipe out all death. You can wipe it all out, but you're gonna die. That makes no sense. You could take over Rome again. You can take over Rome. We have the power in Jerusalem again. You can be the king who sits on the throne. We, Jerusalem, Israel, can have a king in Jerusalem again. What are you thinking? You cannot die. And they did not know what to do with him. This unnerved them. They were completely unnerved. They're like, we don't know what, there is this great chasm in our hearts right now as we follow you. You can do anything, but you're giving it all up to die. However, at the same time, it drew them into Jesus' orbit, and they could not stop following him. So as he was saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, they kept following him. And Sinclair Ferguson says, they sensed that his commitment required their commitment. As they were following Jesus, they began to sense that his commitment required their commitment. Um, when I lived in Carpinteria for uh, a couple years, just training and getting prepared to move here to start this church, I decided I live in Carpinteria, the water's semi-warm, I'm going to take up surfing. And so I did. And I had a, one of my best friends is a really, really, really good surfer. So I would go out with him. And he's crazy. <laughs> and I would go out with him. And he would lead me into very, uh, I don't know if you've ever surfed before, but very big waves. And I didn't have the expertise. I was not in shape. I was not, I didn't know, I didn't have the, I didn't have the equipment. I didn't have any of that stuff to do what he was doing. But he brought me there anyway. And he would call me on the phone and go, hello, miss, okay, the surf's really good right now, let's go. And there would be this great excitement, because I'm like, oh, I get to go surf, but then there was this great fear going, he's crazy. <laughs> he's going to lead me into places, and he had a couple times, one time, it was really big, and uh, the, the surf was really big, and I broke my leash, that little cord that goes from your foot to the surfboard, okay. So I, I, it broke, it snapped, and my board just got, took off, and he grabbed my board and he paddled it back with his board. That's how good he was. And so he paddled it back. I'm like, oh, my savior. And so he's like, here, have my leash. So he gave me his. And then I snapped that as well. <laughs> One time he led me through the rocks, and I got pummeled by the rocks, and I almost died, but it was four feet of water, so it was really embarrassing. <laughs> but when I, the more and more and more I surfed with him, I understood intuitively the same exact thing. I started to realize that if I was going to surf with him, his commitment to surfing required my commitment to surfing. I, when he called me on the phone, he said, let's go, I, I, just, I couldn't say yes, but I'm not going to do what you do. His commitment required mine. I had to follow him into the water. And I knew that intuitively, and this is exactly what it is to follow Jesus. His commitment to the gospel Jesus' commitment to broken people, to restoration, to love, to sacrifice, to humility, to biblical ethics become our commitment. And this is why the whole operating narrative of the end of the book of Mark from chapter eight on is about what does it look like to actually follow him? 
And even though they don't get Jesus, even though they don't even agree necessarily that he should die, they're drawn into his orbit. They're drawn to still follow him. And so following Jesus becomes this amazing and frightening venture. And this is what they were sensing as they followed Jesus to Jerusalem. But why was Jesus going to Jerusalem? Second point, redeeming love. Now here's a question. How is Jesus' violent and unjust death interpreted as meaningful in Mark's story? How is Jesus' violent and unjust death? This might sound a bit strange to you. Now, I mean, you might be all into Jesus healing the world, and you love that message, and him teaching good sermons on loving and forgiving and serving and bringing in the shalom, the peace of God. But when they switch to death and blood and sacrifice, you're like, can we just get rid of that part? Can that part just go away? Like if, you're, if you've, maybe you've been here a couple times and noticed that we're always singing and reciting songs about Jesus' death every single week. And at communion, at the end of the service, I go, and I wanna invite you to take communion. And up front is communion, and you will notice the broken bread, the picture of Jesus' body broken for you, and the cup, which is a picture of Jesus' blood poured out for you. And you're like, this is like a mega death church. Like, they're always talking about Jesus' death. I mean, get over it already. Can we please talk about, like, bunnies and stuff like that? Why is it that there is not a week that goes by that we don't talk about the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus? And particularly the death of Jesus? For the first time in Mark's story, right here, Jesus says how he will heal the world. How will he do it? How will he bring in our salvation? How will he heal our brokenness? See, up to this point, he's just done it. He's just healed, he's restored, he's dealt with the demonic, he has forgiven sin, he just does it. But here, finally, Jesus reveals how he's going to do it. Because where does the sin go? When Jesus forgives sin, where does it go? How is evil actually conquered? How does restoration become a reality? You have to understand, when you begin to read, when you pick up the Bible and you begin to read it, you see that God is so just, that God is so holy that he can't simply overlook or shrug about sin and evil. He must act. He must do something. He doesn't see sin and evil and go, oh, whatever. He has to act. He has to bring about justice. But then the whole question is, in the book of Mark, as you're reading it, how does he do it? Well, here, James and John, they're brothers. They go up to Jesus and they ask him to do something for him. Now, the irony is, is that Jesus is a servant of all, right? He said that earlier, a chapter earlier. He says it again this chapter. Jesus is the servant of all. Jesus already told them that the greatest among you shall be the servant. And so they go up to Jesus and go, Jesus, we need something from you. And Jesus is the servant. He's like, what do you need? We want you to grant us to sit at your right and your left in the coming kingdom. When you come in all of your glory, when you enter into your glory, we wanna sit your right hand and your left. We wanna be your chief of staff. We wanna be your prime ministers when you come into your glory. Now here's the irony here. When would Jesus go into or show the glory of God? When would Jesus show the justice of God and the love of God? When would Jesus do that? Not on the throne, but on the cross. On the cross, God shows that he is completely just, 
that he is completely holy, and God is full of love and grace because it wasn't you on that cross, it was him. And that's why Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. The cup that I drink in the Old Testament was a special cup. It meant the cup of the wrath of God. I'm gonna drink that down to the bottom. The anger of God against injustice and sin. I'm gonna drink that cup for you. And the baptism which I'm baptized with is this, is this unique baptism. It's the symbol of being overwhelmed by the flood of troubles and like the sinking of a ship in the water. But Jesus says, oh, yeah. He says to James and John, you will suffer, but not like me. My ultimate act of service is to give my life as a ransom, he says. My death is different because my life is a ransom for many, to free you and to deliver you to exchange my life for yours. Look at, look, look at verse 43. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, which is this like Old Testament term used in Daniel to show the glory of the coming Messiah, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And my death is different, to give my life as a ransom for many. And Jesus says here that the ultimate act of service, the ultimate act of love, is to sacrifice his own life as a ransom. And at the heart of this word ransom is the concept of exchange, the blessed exchange. We've said a lot during the book of Mark, we said this a lot, I'm gonna say it again, but I, I, want you to, I wanna show you how now. I've said it, but I've never showed you how. So I'll say this again. In the book of Mark, the operating interpretation uh, of the book of Mark is this. The operating uh, narrative is this. Demons dominate people, and illnesses make them less than whole, and nature threatens to destroy, and humans oppress other humans. This is the book of Mark. Jesus comes with a story of a greater power than the power of sin, death, and decay. Jesus breaks in, and he comes with a better story. Now, what is the climax of that story? Jesus on the cross as a ransom for us. Absorbing the curse of sin, taking the punishment for sin, and undoing the power of the demonic on our behalf. Jesus took on human mortality by experiencing the full force of the horrors of our mortal flesh. He brought us redemption. See, if you can do FaceTime with God, face to face with God, you would probably have some crazy prayer requests. You might even have, if you think about it, like some pretty crazy prayer requests that if Jesus answered you audibly, it would be like this. You have no idea what you're asking. We've asked for things. Probably every single person in this room have asked for things of God that if we can hear back immediately and audibly, he would say, you have no idea what you're asking. Just like with James and John here. But, you see the servant side of Jesus as well. Jesus is the only one who knows what we really need. He's the only one who knows what we really need and suffers as a servant to bring us into it. James and John, you don't, you don't need to sit at my right and my left hand. What you do need is for me to die for you. You need a ransom. The only way James and John and the rest of the disciples were ever going to be freed from trying to become the greatest 
The only way that you and I can be freed from trying to become the greatest and the most powerful by human standards, and the only way they could humbly serve each other and this world, and the only way they can go on to suffer for the cause of Christ and the gospel was by seeing Jesus on the cross. It's the only love that can truly free us. Jesus says in John chapter 15, no greater love than this has anyone than this than a man who would lay his life down for his friends. There's two things I want you to take away from that as we finish. There is no greater love in this world that you will find that is as robust, as demonstrative, as powerful as Jesus dying as a ransom for you. There is no greater love that you will find out there. But the second thing that I want to say is that God cannot show and demonstrate his love for you in any greater way than a sacrifice to free you from the bondage and the torment of sin and to bring you into fellowship with himself. If you're like, I just, I want to know that God loves me, there is no greater love that God can show us. There is no greater love in this universe than the perfect, sinless Christ taking our place. He couldn't possibly love you any more than that. Jesus is the suffering servant who has died to save us and to ransom us. Isaiah 53 says, surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. As Jesus moved toward Jerusalem, there's part of us, there's a part of our lives that go, can we just get on with this already? But from this point on, Jesus wants us to know that the, that the center piece of God's revelation is him going to the cross in our place to free us from the power of sin, evil, and to bring us into fellowship with him that you and I can be a part of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, God, that we would begin to sense that love that you have for us, that wonderful and awesome love. But more, actually not more than that, Lord, I pray that that would be it. I pray that would free our hearts to worship and it would free our hearts to bless others and it would free our hearts not to try, continue to try, to try to get to the top of everything, to dominate every relationship and every, everything that we put our hands to, but God, that we would serve, that we be people where our hearts are free to serve, that we would serve in our relationships and in our, our marriages and in our jobs, and we would be people that serve. And I pray, God, even right now, that our time of worship would be this fear and amazement. That when we leave this place, there would be this excitement about following Jesus but this fear of what, what, what am I going to be a part of in this city for the glory of God? And it would radically humble us, God. 
We love you, Lord. I really believe that, I don't know exactly how to say this, but um, with relationships and with things that I, I really wanted to say this morning when it came to singleness or relationships, I think the reason why God wanted us to be here this morning is because the only way that we find true healing in relationships in the state that we're in, whether married or single, is first understanding the great love of God. And from there, our hearts begin to be healed from brokenness, from pain, from loss. Perfect love of God cast out all fear. Some of you guys moving forward in your relationships are so afraid of certain things, and God needs to cast those things out by his love. All of these things really begin to surface and find their healing place at the cross, understanding the love of God. And so that's why I believe that God wanted us here today. So as we worship and respond to God, I want to let you know that we have a prayer team here that would love to pray about anything. Seriously, you can walk up and go. And don't be afraid either. Walk up and pray. Pray for me here in whatever area you're, you're struggling with. Or you're just, you might just walk up and just like, I just need someone, someone just to give me a hug and just to pray. I don't even know what it is, what it's for. Have communion here. Again, I've explained communion. This is thanking Jesus for sacrifice on the cross. And we take it and we agree with God that we need a savior. And we trust in Jesus for our salvation. We have carpets to respond to God on your knees, on your face. Let's do that now.